I'm Peter Riegert. This is Vocal Heroes, my conversations with bright people for dark times. That is, in a weird way, the gift of this pandemic. It makes you braver again. Our industry, as we know it, is finished. It will probably not come back for years. And when it does, many of the institutions which we've known and loved the most are not going to be standing anymore. It's over. We have nothing to lose. That's theater director, playwright, and author Carrie Perloff. We met in 1988 when she hired me as the sinister Goldberg in Harold Pinter's The Birthday Party. We spoke via Zoom on July 3rd, 2020. I'm talking with people and the pandemic hits, and I thought, who's more apt as a writer to talk about this period than our Mm. friend Pinter? It's a very strange moment, this kind of profound global pause. How am I going to regenerate myself? How am I going to help regenerate the planet? How am I going to help regenerate our field? And see where I am when we come out the other end. I've written two plays and I'm writing this big book on Stoppard and Pinter. So you don't see anything happening for a long time? Everybody who runs a theater is spending their days with these modeling programs trying to figure out if I took every fourth seat out and then I did this and then I did that. People do not feel safe. I want to talk about how you got into directing. Do you remember an event when you were younger that crystallized in your head that you were going to do something with the theater? What I wanted to be all my life was an archaeologist from when I was in second grade. I wanted to excavate ancient Greece, uncover the next Troy, and that was where my imagination lived. My father was also an amateur archaeologist. Every weekend we went to the Smithsonian, and one weekend I saw the famous archaeologist Iris Cornelia Love. She was a Guggenheim heiress and wore a black leather miniskirt and fishnet stockings and talked about her excavation of the Temple of Aphrodite in Turkey. And the mystery was that she never found the statue of Aphrodite. She was a genius. She was the only independent archaeologist I knew. People denigrated her because she was a woman. How old were you when you saw her? Eight or nine. I heard this woman speak, and that changed my life. I go to Stanford in order to study classical archaeology, and I take ancient Greek. The first day, we read what the frogs say in Aristophanes, the frogs, Rekikikex, coax, coax. I remember calling home and saying, I just read ancient drama in Greek. I was completely captivated. The Greeks invented Western drama as we know it. Rising action, conflict, character, movement, music. It all comes from the Greeks. Everything. Not only was I being introduced to the theater through ancient Greece, but I was coming at the advent of theater in democracy. That's how I learned how to direct. We staged Greek tragedies in Greek. I was captivated, inching my way towards the drama department. I started reading Pinter, UNESCO Beckett. Many years later, when I got the job at ACT, the board member who hired me had been Iris Cornelia Love's roommate at college in the 50s. I wrote a play, Luminescence Dating, which was inspired by Iris Love. The board member who hired me calls me and says, why don't you come for dinner? I'd like to introduce you to someone. I knock on the door. A woman answers. She's holding a little dog. She puts out her hand. 
Hello, Carrie. My name is Iris Cornelia Love. I just smiled and I said what a pleasure it was to meet her and we had a beautiful meal. I couldn't even figure out how to say to this woman, you changed my life and set it on a course that I never looked back. I never showed Iris the play, but it was a joy to meet her. Your description of the archaeology and then learning about theater by studying the Greeks, I got invited by a couple of friends to visit them in Italy. It was a four-gated Roman city, and they had an amphitheater. It must have seated 1,200 people. I said to my friends, sit up there in the audience, and I make up some kind of insane three to five minute little riff that I'm improvising, and then I bowed, and they stood up as if they were 1,200 people cheering. And all of a sudden, like that, I went, oh, my God. <laughs> this is where it was done. Yeah. You had an early experience like mm. that. If there's any metaphor for creativity, it's archaeology. Because you have to dig, uncover yeah. what's been buried, and find out either what it means or what it connects yeah. to. I've always gotten along with writers. The mining of the text is exactly that. When you're on a dig, you're sitting there in a pit, which is kind of like a rehearsal, you find a nugget and you have to stop. And then you have to mark where you found it. And we used to have a joke when I excavated. If you couldn't figure out what something was, you would label it a ritual object. <laughs> <laughs> that sometimes happens in a play. You get to a moment and you think, what is that? What does that mean? I didn't go to drama school. I thought it was an apprenticed profession. I didn't want to go to drama school for exactly the reason you said. Tom Stoppard once said, it's a craft. It's like calling a plumber. You learn it by watching other people and by daring to work with people who know much more than you. How'd you get uh, to Oxford? I applied for a Fulbright and I got it. And my professors didn't want to teach drama. They don't teach drama at right. Oxford because they're yes. so terribly refined. <laughs> This was 1980. They were so old-fashioned, very class-bound. But the main thing for me at Oxford, nobody thought you had to have a professional degree. You could direct. That was very liberating. And if you were bold enough to go to one of these college drama societies and say, I have an idea, they'd give you like 20 pounds. And then you had to cast it and design it and direct it. And I got to do a lot. And the first one, I directed my own translation of the Satyricon. I put out a little advertising thing that was a vase painting of a man sucking another man off. I didn't make it up. It was a real vase painting. And I got in terrible trouble. And therefore, the show completely sold out. So it was my first lesson in producing. <laughs> be bold and go for it. Get in trouble and people will come. I directed a lot at Oxford, and I met my husband, Anthony, because I was doing the <laughs> Edinburgh Festival. We were auditioning together, and he kept taking all the funny actors. Finally, I said, what are you doing? And he said, I need the funny people, but I'll be in your play. And then he never turned up for rehearsals, but we fell in love anyway. Been married 37 years. And I came back to New York knowing no one, didn't know how impossible it was going to be. I went to a temp agency to try and get a job. <laughs> it was 100 degrees. I got there in August. And the woman said, Carrie, if you don't wear pantyhose, you're unemployable. And I thought, screw you. I'm not wearing pantyhose in August. And I applied for a job at the International Theater Institute to be the secretary. Where was so, it and what was it? It was a branch of an international organization about theater. And I was like the little girl in the front. 
everybody in the world walked through those doors. Peter Brook, Meredith Monk, Lev Doden, brilliant artists from around the world. They had a huge international library. Every day I'd pick another shelf. I learned everything. Those coincidental, yeah. you know. Olympia Dukakis, one of my great mentors, she always said to me, stop beating your head against the wall and look for the open door. And when I teach young directors now, I always say, you can't plan a career. It never occurred to me I would end up in the theater. And when I did, it never occurred to me that these various influences would come and change my life. So the fact that in ancient Greek, we started reading Greek plays, and the next thing you know, I'm doing that. And then I end up in England directing all these plays. And then I come back to New York, and I think, what did all that have to do with anything? But one of the plays I brought back was a Stephen Burkhoff play called Greek, a kind of punk version of Oedipus. And it's one of the first plays I ever directed professionally. So you just kept waiting to see what was out there, what door would open, who can I learn from? My MFA was Judy Ivey. She was in a one-person show that I directed. This was early on. Very early. Judy helped me to understand how to direct an actor. And you don't learn that in drama school from another student. We would work, and then she would say to me, stop, I'm an actor, okay? I can't take in 10 notes. Give me one thought, let me see where that goes, and then we'll move on. Give me a verb, give me something to play, then you can respond. Or she would say to me, today, let me just have my head so I can start to put it together. She did not do it with disrespect. And she listened to me, even though I didn't know what I was doing. I don't care how many classes you take. There's nothing safer than an acting school because there's nothing at stake. You get a job and you have to make an audience pay attention. That's a different animal. But the willingness to risk it all, the danger, that's something you got to do out in the field. At least with acting, because I ran an acting school for 25 years at ACT, you can learn a skill set. If you believe that a huge part of directing, as I believe, is your collaboration with actors, that is a very delicate and fascinating thing. You have to learn how to read the room. Every actor needs different things at different moments. It is your job to weave those needs together. But when an actor helped me to understand what was useful to them, what was going to trigger their imagination. That was always gold to me. I so admire actors because I'm not an actor. And you learn an enormous amount from where actors are fearful. And you make me think of that. We did the double bill of the birthday party with Mountain Language, with Harold Pinter in the room. And I had made the decision that I would cast against type for Mountain Language. You, who played the killer in the birthday party, played the victim. And that was not a comfortable role for you. You're a very powerful actor. You're really funny. You are used to being on top. And I don't know if you remember this, but you would call me just about every night, Carrie, it's Rieger. You got to reconsider. This is a (laughs) terrible idea. It's not the right role for me. And what I knew was something was going to trigger that imagination and you were going to land in that role. And it happened the day that Harold Pinter went into the dressing room, pulled my 10-day-old baby into the theater where we were rehearsing, put her on the table in her carry cot, and said to you, Peter, you're a man. 
who has never seen your child and will never see your child because you're a political prisoner through no fault of your own. And this is your child. This is not an abstract thing. This is yours. And you'll never see her again. Now play the scene. You went white and you got very quiet, which is unusual for you. <laughs> and you looked at that baby. And because you were an improv actor, you said yes. And you got it. I'll never forget it yeah. in my life. An actor can do anything if they're made to feel safe. And that comes from the director. That was an experience which made me understand something about myself, how much I connected to the malevolence of that character. Again, remember, my vocabulary was what I learned along the way. I didn't know from method acting or any acting teacher because already I had enough experience by 1988, 17 you years. It's hard to remember exactly what I was afraid of, but when Harold Pinter plops a baby in front of you, you pay attention. That's what I think his genius was. He could paint a picture that allowed you to not act. Now that I'm rereading all the plays yeah. and looking at all our notes that we made together with Harold, a huge part of it, he was an actor and a director. Yeah. He didn't want his plays to be cerebral and intellectually felt. He wanted them right. to be viscerally experienced. What I think you felt in the room with him, and I know I felt in the room with him, he wanted the theatrical event to work. He was totally on your side. He was laughing and he was empathizing. Because the other wonderful moment in that was the first time we ran the interrogation scene in the birthday party. That's an impossible thing to learn. And you, who had learned it meticulously, completely went up. But you know, Pinter's all non sequiturs. You can't pull this shit out of your head. Yeah. Because you'll never figure it out. And I turned around and looked at Pinter and he was weeping laughing. He kept saying, the baby powder, the baby powder. <laughs> he had done Goldberg and the same thing had happened. Oh yeah, oh in yeah. A performance. The craftsmanship alone, I am still in such awe of him. He took me aside one night and said to me, you know, you're a killer, right? You know, just don't play a killer. I said, oh my God, does it look like I'm playing a killer? He said, no, no, no I just want to get it out there that this is not an imaginary thing. You're just a brush salesman in Brighton. That began a conversation from his point of view about American actors and their need to know their motivation for doing anything. All that mattered to me was how I played with the other actors. You may remember when we offered you the role, you yeah. said, I would like to come read, which blew my mind. This was a nudnik little off-Broadway theater that was paying you nothing. Done a lot of great film by then, and you yeah. worked with David Mamet, and you said, I won't come to the east side. I'd like to stay on the west side train. That I remember saying. If there's an offer to do something, I think I know why I'm saying yes, but it's not till I'm well into the experience and after that I realized there was something subtextual that was calling to me, mm. but I can't know it when I start. It goes back to this thing we were talking about. Where does your instinct tell you to go? First of all, you understand Jewish comedy. You're a natural comic and you're a Borschfeld comic, which Pinter loved. That was Beckett's big discovery that vaudeville. we all live yeah. as a vaudevillian act. I realized that because your career had started in improv, 
what you would be able to do with Pinter was step onto that deck as if it were a boxing ring and just take on the other actor in real time. It would feel alive in the moment rather than premeditated. This is the trap people have when they do Pinter is that they waste half the rehearsal asking things. Pinter himself wrote beautiful things about the impossibility of verifying the past. Even if you and I, five minutes after we have this conversation, tried to describe what we had just had, we would describe it differently because the past is endlessly elusive. I found a line from Celebration, and Suki says, I sometimes feel the past is never past. And Julie says, you mean yesterday is today? (laughs) Harold would say over and over again, there are no moments these characters are banging into each other and the pauses and the silences are not figuring anything out. That's why his characters can be so vicious with one another. Nothing is allowed to really land. (laughs) You just have to move on. That was absolutely true. And on the other hand, what's so remarkable about working on Pinter, he respects his own characters so much. They are more full-blooded than characters of many other writers. Pinter would sit in the room and he would watch what we were doing as if he were watching the work of another writer, not his own. But he was thinking of what is the more active choice. It's not my job to make it mean something. It's the audience's job to take the meaning from us. The best note David Mamet ever gave, and I did four plays with him, the audience has a job to do. Let them. Let yeah, them yeah. do that. I'll leap ahead to the room and celebration. We were in tech on 9-11. We did our first preview on uh, September 13th. The feeling of dread was in the air. We didn't know if anybody was going to come out of their house. That was in California. That wasn't even in New York. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, but for those couple it of days. It was awful. So the first play we're going to do is The Room. <laughs> terror. <laughs> about terror and dread. So we do The Room. The air was taught with dread. It's a terrifying part. But on this night, with this audience, after 9-11, the Geary holds yeah. thousand people. Mm-hmm. It was extraordinary. There was no sound, but it was like we were plugged into an electrical outlet. The audience told us what the play was. Reams have been written about what does the play symbolize? All these theories. But what you really realize it's about is that we go through life as human beings, terrified that an unnamed threat is gonna knock on that door and devour us. At this moment that you and I are speaking about, it's about the pandemic. I went back and read Celebration because Pinter is always about that hidden threat. Is it viral? Is it a person? And we've all felt it. But think about the birthday party. It's about the knock at the door, nameless terror. And it doesn't matter why it comes. And that night in the Geary, it was real. And it was so great that we did it in rep with this thing called Celebration, which we kept telling ourselves was a comedy. But you know, when you're working on a comedy for four weeks, you have no idea what's funny. So we were in the dressing room and we had a break because you had to reset the set. And we looked at each other and went, do you think anyone's going to (laughs) stay? We came out on stage. The electricity in the audience was still there. The 600 people who came, basically the orchestra, they were still there 
and they didn't know what they were going to see. And the first couple of lines, the waiter comes over and says, who's having the duck? And I say, I'm having the duck. And Julie says, no, you're not. And I go, no, I'm not. And we were <laughs> off to the races. That audience, they made a noise of laughter as yeah. if they were breathing for the first time. It's when I understood in a way I never had before why human beings create theater. It was the most visceral release. And that audience needed to laugh so badly. This is the definition of catharsis. That's right. They are being reminded physically what life is. Again, if you trust the text and you raise the stakes, tighten the physical space so nobody can get out, which is one of Harold's geniuses, that you make the space like a raft where nobody can get off. And then it's like a pressure cooker. What you realize is you don't have to explain anything. If you do it with amazing gusto, when I read his letter, he thinks theater is a place for energy and gusto. And you can't do it with mediocre writing. The thing that's liberating about Pinter and the Mammoth plays that I could be Lambert with vigor, that I didn't have to try and figure out how to make him a nice guy. That's what was scary. Goldberg had his own charm, which of course, the most horrible people in the world are charming. That's what yes. makes it so fucking terrifying. And they're loquacious in that remarkable way. One of the things I remember most viscerally about your performance in the birthday party is you were such a facile speaker. And then comes this moment when you're exhausted in act three. Oh God. And trying to convince McCann that you have some coherent worldview. And the speech ends with you standing up saying, because I believe that the world, there's a pause, because I believe that the world, there's another pause, because I believe that the world, and then there is a silence. It was so terrifying. And I remember Harold saying to you, let that silence last as long as yeah, it lasts. Yeah. And then you sat down and it was like watching an edifice crumble. Not only did this guy have no belief and no worldview, but he knew it. He knew he was completely hollow and therefore he had to kill somebody else. And you had an instinct about how to play that. I think it was falling in love with the sounds, <laughs> right? He's a poet. When I meet Lulu, how yeah. do you do Lulu? <laughs> all I heard was, you do Lulu. It's all <laughs> in there. I do want to say one thing that you really taught me too. I didn't realize what a deeply Jewish writer Pinter was. I don't think most people talk about that or think about that with him, but reading his own commentary about the war. This guy was a teenager when the war starts. The anti-Semitism in England is huge. He's sent away to the country so he doesn't get bombed. And he always hated nature. So he comes home and lives through the blitz in a trench in his back garden. And that was so profound. The first poem he ever wrote was about being a rep actor in Ireland. And he wrote about having a drink at the Whitbread Arms. And he had one wealthy relative, uncle, I can't remember his name. And his father took him over there and said, read to your uncle the poem. And when he got to the Whitbread Arms, the uncle said, Whitbread, stock is going up. <laughs> we think he's an abstract playwright, but he's oh, really no, no, no. a poet no. of observation. It's absolutely all there. I'm 50 years doing this. 
if I can spend my life doing Pinter plays, you're allowed to do the most acrobatic things with his language. It makes you a bigger artist. After the first run through, you were lying prone on the ground and you said, I can't even move because there's no fat in these plays. There's no wind up time. You're just on the whole time. It's exhausting. It's the most amazing workout. When we were talking, you also said, you have to let me do my job, meaning him, Pinter. If you, as the actor, think you know what I wrote, you're making a terrible mistake. But I promise you, if you follow the text of this script, by the end of the play, you will scare the shit out of the audience and yourself. (laughs) Theater is a magic trick. I know all the lines. I know what's coming. But what he was saying is abandon that because every night you will be shocked by what you're saying, but you have to say it with the most conviction. Ralph Richardson, I saw him interviewed once. He learned lines by writing. If you handwrite out your lines, you will find connectives that you can't hear orally but you can see visually. Uh And that's where, how do you do Lulu? Now you can't Mm. slow the play down and luxuriate over them, but you can vigorously say them, yeah. Yeah, you can pop them and things have to be lifted. And because I had worked with him so long, when I also started working with Tom Stockard, who then informed the next 25 years of my life, I did 11 plays with Tom. When we would do a run through, Tom would write in the margin of the script, L.A., which stood for look after. And what he meant is look after this word, because if you lift this word here, it will pay out here. The logic of the play was residual because everything seemed like non sequiturs. I do remember when you say, what have you done with your wife? I haven't got a wife. He's killed his wife. And you said, did he have a wife? And Harold said, if you accuse somebody of enough things, they will be guilty of one of them. That's it. Boy, if there's anybody I wish were around now to talk about the world we're living in, it's Harold Pinter. He understood the corruption of language by people in power. Everything is a contradiction. Listen to Donald Trump talk and listen to people defend him. None of it makes any sense whatsoever. That's the genius (laughs) of celebration. It's like a lunatic asylum. It's this combination of the ordinary and the imaginative. He wasn't trying to impress a message on you or show his worthiness. In the early plays, when he was really determined not to let you, for instance, judge Goldberg just because Goldberg was the villain, to go back to the very beginning of our conversation about Greek tragedy, drama was created for a democracy. As people living in a democracy, we have to argue with ourselves. That's what we do. And over that insane and often exhausting and painful argument, the culture moves forward. And that was drama. When Greeks sat in that theater that you described in Umbria, they were the jury. It's really the beginning of the justice system, telling a story to convince the audience of something. Pinter had that kind of impulse that you create a dialectic on stage. And that's why watching a Pinter play is a very active experience on the part of the audience. The famous story uh, was around the birthday party and people kept saying to him, what's it about? And he threw them a bone and the bone was, it's about the weasel under the cocktail cabinet. To me, the cocktail cabinet represented civility 
going to the theater is a very civilized thing to do. Mm-hmm. And then the play begins and all these weasels show up on stage <laughs> oh, and staring at each other. And then the play ends and everybody goes back to their civilized life. Mountain language was a terrifying portrait about people I didn't even know to worry about. It was very much about the Kurdish situation, but it was about people who are forbidden to speak their own language. 1989, we did that play. We did. And I think the reason we all found it so moving, being there with Harold in the room, is that language was his lifeline. It's so ironic that he got esophageal cancer and had so much trouble speaking. Of course, he smoked a billion cigarettes a day until he was 70. But he was so moved by people who were ostracized, which is the Greek word. You know, when the Greeks sent somebody away from Athens, the ostracon was the piece of pottery that was dropped in, red, white, or black, to determine if somebody was going to be exiled. And the worst thing that could ever happen to you is that you had to leave Greece and you couldn't speak Greek anymore. And I think for Pinter, it was the same. Language was everything. So Mountain Language was a play about the torment of being people who weren't even allowed to communicate in their own language. The other thing that I find so timely, language is you. It's your voice. How do you find your voice? George Floyd, that cop crushed his voice as if to say, you have no voice. I'm taking your voice away. And you remember, I Can't Breathe had been repeated in other kinds of police brutality, where the police said, if you're talking, you're breathing. But that idea of the voice, the celebration Mm -hmm. of humanity, learning how to find your voice. Yes. Just as a human, being able to say no. That's what I think Harold wrote about. What does it take in life to actually find your voice, whatever it is that you're doing, and how do you trust that? I'd done a play in high school and done a play in college, but I guess I was 23. I'm in a play. An actor, he was 26. Old and experienced. He said, whenever the director asks a question, you raise your hand. This isn't school. Are you aware of the fact that you have this job? (laughs) Stop auditioning. You got the job. Yeah. They think you're the guy for this part. If they think you're the guy, be the guy. Be the guy. (laughs) Going back, when were you offered CSC? What happened is I was 26 years old. They were bankrupt. I have a knack for finding indigent organizations that I am then asked to save. I was directing Thornton Wilder's The Skin of Our Teeth, which is a real archaeology play about cultural history. And we had no money for the set. So we walked around the East Village scavenging old, broken, empty television sets and stuff. And we made an assemblage like a Cornell box on stage and we spray painted it all white. And that was the set. It was like Pompeii after the eruption. After that, the head of the board said to me, this theater's bankrupt, the artistic director's gone. Do you want to run it? And I knew nothing about running a theater. And what I learned, Peter, was you change the toilet paper in the bathroom. You create the programming. You cast the actors. You're on the phone with agents. You write the press releases. Whatever the hell it takes, that's what you do. But what I started with, to go back to the Greeks, Ezra Pound's version of Alexa. It was my way of trying to explore a modern, wacko version of material I knew very deeply, which was Sophocles' Electra. What year? 
That was 1987. Those were the days when you could work off of Broadway and really great actors wanted to do plays. When I joined you, you were only there a year. I'd only been there a year and a bit. Wow. Through that, I met Tony Harrison, the British poet who had written a version of Phaedra that was called Phaedra Britannicus that was set in British India. We did the American premiere of that. Then I wanted to do Pinter. Pinter's agent would not give me the rights because of just what you said before. She was not pleased with American productions of his plays, which she thought were really over-psychologized. Finally, I called Tony Harrison and I said, you know Harold, right? He said, oh yes. Would you tell him that I get it, that I'm an American Jew, that I'm married to a Brit, that I have a good sense of humor, that I have a sense of language, that I will do justice to the plays? He called Harold. I don't know what he said. Pinter's agent called me and she said, all right, the rights of the play are yours but Harold will have to approve all the actors. After we did it, Lauren Bacall was sent to see it, his right. best friend. He wrote to me to say how much Betty had loved it and he'd like us to do Mountain Language. He was in New York and he came down to CSC and we all went out and had a drink with Harold before we rehearsed. And we then he came for rehearsals, obviously. He spent yeah. a week. First thing he said to us after we did the run through? What? I loathe mm -hmm. bowler hats. But I remember when he took us out for drinks that Wendy McKenna, who was playing Lulu, charmed him enormously because he loved beautiful women. And he kept looking at her going, McKenna, McKenna, Irish? And she'd go, no. And then we'd drink. And then he'd go, McKenna, McKenna, Irish? No. And he knew something was up. And finally, he discovered that her real name was Wendy Rosenberg. And she was a Jew ah. who had changed her name. And, you know, all of the birthday party is about changing your name. Wow. He's an intimidating person. I was always curious where you got the courage. I'm listening to you basically say, I've been stumbling my way forward. Plenty of people are telling you no, but they're still letting you in. Peter, I think you had the same experience. You are braver when you're young. Oh I mean, God. sad, but true. As I'm writing this book and talking to people, now people say to me, what made you think you're a 26-year-old woman? There were yeah. no women doing this kind of thing. With no graduate school at Yale or anything, what made you dare to take on Harold Pinter? It never occurred to me to be scared of it. I thought the play was divine. Yeah. I felt honored and lucky and thrilled every day to be doing it. I felt like I had an instinct about it. And somehow I thought, we have something to offer this man. I think the fact that we were this scrappy little theater with have, no money yeah. in the East Village. The first review I got was in the London Times who said, you only walk down grimy 13th Street to buy drugs or to buy a ticket at CSC. It wasn't fancy. And I think that made Harold feel alive. By then he was 60. And I think he thought, this is funky. These are young people. They love my play. They're committed to it. He did not ever patronize us that I No, not at all. Yeah, it was a great space. Because it was a thrust stage, yes. we didn't have walls, and therefore you could see the staircase going upstairs. And he said, oh my God, it never occurred to me because he'd always written for a proscenium. And I said, well, we're not a proscenium, Harold, yeah. so this is the set. Very minimal, but it had this staircase. And you 26 steps. Was it 26? It was a lot of steps. And you will remember that in Pinter, what goes on upstairs is always the place of horror. He watched you with utter fascination. And one day he said to you, Peter, 
I wonder if you would add a line for me. And you were like, whoa, this is happening to me now, Harold Pinter. And I remember he said, would you mind halfway up the stairs, would you pause, look back and say, what a lovely flight of stairs. When he mentioned my name, all I kept thinking was, oh my God, oh my God, Harold Pinter, I'm going to say a new line. What is it going to be? Neither a borrower nor a lender be? <laughs> I kept coming up with famous quotable lines. And when he said, what a lovely flight of stairs, I thought, that's it? And of course, the first night that I got to say that line, as an actor, when you know you have a great line, the question is, how long can you hold <laughs> so that you can crack that audience? Every night, they just burst out laughing. I'll never forget Jean Stapleton. She comes down the stairs in her tulip dress. Such a landing for an actress. I would walk her to 14th Street to get her a cab. So one night I'm walking with Jean and we're talking and three, I'll call them kids, but they were obviously in their 20s, clocked me from Animal House. And they said, would you sign this? And they scampered away. And Jean said, oh, that was so great. I said, what? They didn't know who I was. They didn't say, are you Edith? The most recognized actress. I know. And she loved being her yeah. old self. What was so extraordinary about Jean, because she'd never done anything like that, was the level of trust she placed in me and in the actors she was working with. And I read the most beautiful interview recently with her and you in this Pinter Review magazine right, from right. the time, where she said, I felt that the envelope would hold me. When you've had that kind of experience with material that's that extraordinary and you're with the playwright and you're with other great actors, it's very hard to find that again. It's very rare and you keep coming back to that feeling when you're firing on all cylinders and you just know all you have to do is get out of your own way and let the thing rip. And you said earlier, which is something that relates to this project I'm working on, Yes, when you're young, you're fearless. And mm. the sad thing about getting older is you become fearful. In order for me to do this mm -hmm. podcast, I have to be fearless. That is, in a weird way, the gift of this pandemic. It makes you braver again. Our industry, as we know it, yeah. is finished. It will probably not come back for years. And when it does, many of the institutions which we've known and loved the most are not going to be standing anymore. It's over. We have nothing to lose. I've written two crazy plays. I'm writing this book. I want to start an acting company to do classical plays, God knows where, outdoors, whatever. What do we have to lose? There's a reason this happened at this moment. I mean, it's terrible and awful and people are suffering. We have loads of inner resources that we'd forgotten we even had. I've read all of Proust. I never thought I would read Proust. I've always been intimidated. It's hilarious and brilliant and crazy. I can't put it down. I never would have done it. But the last time you would have time to do this was as a student. I started running a theater when I was 26 years old, and I'm very grateful because it paid for me to have children and have health care and live in the same place. And I got to do work that I loved, running ACT. You know, I went to ACT when I was 32, and then I had another kid. All I did, Peter, was work 18-hour days trying to have a marriage, raise my children, run my theater, and direct the place I wanted to direct, and try to write. The idea that you would pick up something to read 
I never ever got to do. I was always on that treadmill. I reread and watched Celebration. Yeah. Michael Gambon played Lambert, which I played. And I'm thinking, who does he remind me of? That's her with the gold. I better use some Tic Tacs just in case I start kissing her. You know, I'm automatically attracted to beautiful. I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a, a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab by the pussy. You can do anything. Isn't Brilliant, that insane? Peter. It's horrible. He's an even more debauched Trump. That's what Pinter was getting at. Gangsters oh, who had just loathsome contempt for everybody, but they had power. I'll close with one last story. We were at one of those parties. He seems taller than he is. He has that voice, and then he's Harold Pinter. We're both standing next to each other, and he's watching the room, and he says to me, do you know the worst thing I've ever written in any of my plays, Peter? <laughs> I, I'm sitting there going, no, I, no, Harold, I don't. Pause. Yeah. And I said, there's a picture of you next to that word in the dictionary. He said, I never meant stop. I meant beat. Remember, he was telling me things that I had been learning mm, on my mm, own. Mm. The text is music. Mm -hmm. And you're hiring great instruments who complement each other. Yeah. You've worked with actors who can't keep time. It'll drive you up the wall. And you want to say, get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> when the homecoming was being tried out in Boston, and it got a terrible review that said the second act of this play has nothing to do with the first act of the play, which is why it's so brilliant. The producer said to him, well, Harold, what are you going to do about the second act? And Harold said, I'm not going to do anything. That's the second act of my play. And I thought, thank God this man had such a sense of his own voice. Exactly. That he wasn't going to rewrite it even for a Broadway producer. And I think that's incredibly rare. And that's why the plays will never date. To find your voice, you must be heroic. You can't cuddle it. You can't sidle up to it, you know? For us, part of being heroic is talking. So it was great to talk to you, my beloved Peter. And here's to many more. My love to Anthony. And, uh, oh, this was great. All right, darling, I love you. Much love. Thanks. Bye. Vocal Heroes is brought to you by Two Tequila Productions. Lila Newman is our editor and audio producer. Cornelia Reed is the producer. Sound recording is by Mark Solomon. Mary Edith Burrell is the creative consultant. And Derek Burroughs built our website, vocalheroes.com. Thanks to Andy Kubachevsky and Amygdala Music for the theme. Special thanks to Leslie Rossman, James Frizee, Robin Erdang, and Freya Reed. For more, visit vocalheroes.com. I'm Peter Riegert. Thanks for listening.